Our passage today is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, that's on 1015, page 1015. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might, might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You guys go ahead and be seated. Good morning, Delta. Thanks for uh, coming today, worshiping. As we turn our mind's eye to worship Jesus Christ through the preaching of the word, why don't you guys just engage in prayer with me? We'll ask the Holy Spirit to assist me to proclaim what Peter wants us to hear today from these verses, and then we will turn and learn as the Holy Spirit helps us understand. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do your work of showing us the mind of God from these scriptures, assist me to proclaim now the very truths found here in these verses. Would our hearts and our minds align as we come under the authority of the words of Jesus Christ found here as our brother in Christ, Peter, teaches us what it looks like to be a gospel-minded people. We love you, and we thank you, and we pray and ask these things in your holy name. Amen. I want you to draw into your mind's eye, in your, in your imagination, this idea of concentric circles. Okay? Um, if, you, if you need help, you can think of like an archery target. You can think of a bullseye with those, those circles that just sort of, sort of go outward. You can think of a dartboard, or if you can think of, uh, as a little kid, I used to do this in my grandpa's um, farmland, he'd have a couple of ponds. You can go take a rock and just that, that smooth pond, and you just toss that rock out. When it hits, it, it just plops right in that center. Then all of a sudden, you have those waves that just go close, and they go out, and they go out, and they go out, and they go out. Um, this idea of concentric circles, um, I, I don't know that Peter would come to us and say, this is what I have in mind, but this is really what he's doing when he's coming to us now, applying the gospel that he's been talking about all the way starting back at the beginning of his, his letter, 1 Peter, back in chapter 1, verse 1. What he's, what he's doing now is saying, I've given you a picture of the gospel. I've painted for you what it looks like, the great good news message that's come to us, what God has done for us in, in Jesus Christ. 
And now what I want to do is apply it for you, show to you the practicality of the gospel. And what he does is he really gives us this, this idea of co- this concentric circles of relationship. Um, with us at the center, and, w- and, w- and what he's doing is he's showing us that God is the creator God. Yes, he's created the heavens, he's created the sky, he's created water, he's created grass, but God is also the creator of relationship. And God has instituted these, these realms of relationship that we function under. Last week we saw this, this realm of relationship called civil authority, government. God instituted that. And, and Peter comes to us and says, we as a gospel people, what we don't do is come to this relationship realm and disengage, but we are to engage in this realm because we are a gospel people. This week, as we move a little bit closer toward the center, most of us go, well, you know, the idea of government's good, but it's sort of, it's sort of far out there. I don't know how exactly that just relates to me on the day in and day out level. And, and Peter says, well, well, don't worry. There's another realm of, of uh, the sphere of relationship that God has, God has created, God has instituted. And today what we're going to do is see him talk about this relational sphere of work. How does an employee relate to an employer? Next week, we're going to see it move just a, one of those relational spheres closer to the center of where we bump into life and relationship. And, and next week, we'll see that in, in regard to marriage. But today, Peter's going to, to show us that the gospel invades all areas of life. It, looks, it invades government, it invades work, it invades mess, marriage. And today, he's going to show us and talk to us about work. The big idea that we've been spreading over these verses, 2.13 through 3.7, really come from what we looked at on those two weeks in chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Where what we said was God has given us a gospel identity. And our gospel identity drives gospel mission. But at the sake of being too academic, too ideological, too idea-driven, Peter says, don't worry, I'm going to show you what gospel mission looks like. So we ask the question, well, what is gospel mission? And I think it is this. Ultimately, gospel mission is when people who have been saved by the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, they go forward and proclaim good news message so that disciples of Jesus will be made. Peter showed us that gospel mission can be derailed in two ways, when we don't fight sin and when we don't keep our conduct holy. Then last week he turned to the positive aspect of gospel mission and said this is what it looks like in the realm of civil authority and how we relate to those who are in offices who are in that realm of government. And this week what he's going to do is he's going to park this idea of what gospel mission, this idea of what does it look like to proclaim the good news message in the sphere of work, specifically work and authority. God has created us to work. The sphere of government is a creation aspect. You can go back to Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve were essentially little mini kings set up to rule underneath God. It's a form, it's a realm, and it's an institution that God created all the way back in the Genesis accounts. The sphere of relationship and work, Genesis account. Even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were to work. Marriage is an institution created by God. You can go back to the Garden of Eden and you're going to see, even there, this idea that God created this institution. 
And what Peter's going to do is argue that we don't look at these things and go, well, that's nice. That's sort of my marriage compartment over there. And this is my, my work compartment over there. And this is, this is my civil authority government compartment over there. And, and what I do is in my church compartment, I love the gospel and I think about the gospel and I dwell on the gospel. But what he's going to say is, no, the gospel invades all areas of life. And today he's just going to, like a laser, he's going to hone in on that, that relational sphere of work. And he's going to not talk about just merely a theology of work, but what he's going to do is he's going to come and he's going to say there's a specific aspect of work I want to address because the gospel has something to say about work and authority. How do we relate to those who are in authority over us? And he's going to couch it in the sphere of work. So we can ask this question, how do believers operate in this relational sphere of work? Peter's going to show us three things. These three things are going to be this. Verse 18, he's going to show us that believers are to submit to authority, not just to good and gentle authority, but believers are to submit even to unjust authority. Verses 19 and 20 is going to show us that believers can please God when they endure unjust suffering. And in verses 21 through 25, Peter's going to show us that believers live out our calling to endure unjust suffering by looking to and imitating Jesus Christ. So look at verse 18 with me in your copy of Scripture, wherever it's that pew Bible, your own, your own hardback copy or iPad, iPhone. Verse 18, chapter 2, 1 Peter says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Believers are to submit to unjust authority. Everyone in some way is under some sort of authority as it relates to work. And Peter rightly recognizes this, and in in order to make his point, he goes straight to the most common form of work relationship found in his day. So as he's writing this letter, right, we have to remember and understand that, that Peter is writing a specific letter, this letter we have in front of us, to a specific people, believers who are in Asia Minor. And what he's going to do is he's going to look at the most common work relationship, the most common way that these Christian believers, these, these people, these men and women, how they operate in this world. For him, it was the servant-master relationship. But when you, when you jump to our day, our tendency might be to go, well, that was good. You know, great point of gospel application, Peter, for those people back then. Like, I don't have a master here in 2014. I'm not a servant. So we can just really skip right over this, right? Like, let's just jump to the marriage, the marriage aspect. Let's get to chapter 3 and, and, and just sort of scoop past what Peter has to say here. But, but there's really a bigger principle that we can draw out here because really this, this aspect, this relational sphere of work for Peter's day that was common, the servant-master relationship, the modern relationship that best equates to Peter's scenario would be the employee employer relationship, the you-to-boss relationship, the me-to-manager, the me-to-supervisor relationship that all of us experience in some, some way. And it is here in this relational sphere that Peter says believers, believers can proclaim the gospel especially when they endure sorrows while suffering from and under unjust authority. 
Peter states the command. Look there at that first, first phrase in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And again, we, we, we keep seeing this over and over. Peter loves to teach in this way. He just simply comes forward and says this, command, fact. This is, this is true and you are to think this way. Not only are you to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human creation, every human institution, to civil authority, but you are also in like manner as servants, as employees, to be subject to your employers with all respect. Workers are to submit to their bosses. Your, your boss, your supervisor, your manager is a unique creation of God. They, they serve and they operate in the same realm of category, that, that realm of authority in an institution created by God. And last week we said for the same reason that we, we honor and we submit to and we respect those people in civil authority because they are people created in God's image and they're serving and functioning in an office, in a place, in a realm, in an institution created by God. That exact same idea spills over down into this section of Peter's letter. Because this is true, we are to to be subject to them with all respect. It is a call to adopt the right attitude toward authority, to not just submit begrudgingly, but rather submit with the heart attitude of willing obedience to the instruction that you receive from these authorities as you you interact with them on a day-to-day basis. But notice that submission to authority in the work sphere is not on our terms, right? right. He qualifies it. Look, look what he says in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And he, it's not a period there. There's a, there's a comma. So how are we to be subject to our masters? Is it to everybody? Is it to, to some? Can we build categories? Can we limit to whom we submit ourselves to? And Peter says, says no, a gospel-minded people, we are to be subject to employers, bosses, supervisors, managers with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but who? To also those who operate as those who are unjust. Submit. Not only to the good and gentle, submit also to the unjust. And see here immediately in verse 18, I mean, good grief, we haven't even come close to 19 through 25 and we're already feeling a little bit of chafing from these scriptures, right? Some people take issue with just having to to flat out submit to authority. I'm an American. We love the, the model of South Carolina's state flag, don't tread on me. Do you know who you're talking to? I'm an individual. I've built this. I've done this. I've thought this way. I've fought. I've argued. I've done. I've done. I've done. No one tells me what to do. Others may submit, but it's only after first giving a qualification. Well, I will submit to this this manager. I will submit to my supervisor. I will submit to this person only as long as I deem they are worthy of submission. If this person honors me in some way, then I will do what they say. If this person is on board with the way I think things should be run, then I will submit to this person. If this person is good towards me, then I will submit to this person. And what we do is we build up a category of, I will honor God by obeying his word, but I will only do it to those who are good and gentle, those who are the ones I deem as worthy of me being submissive to. But what this essentially is, is submission with you at the center of it. This is you-centered submission. 
This is submission to authority for your sake. As long as they are serving my cause, then I will submit to their authority. The moment that they step out and away from anything that I think is worthy, then I will by no means submit to them. But notice that the command to submit to authority ultimately rests in God, and it's not our decision of whether or not this person is worthy. Peter comes along and and debunks this way of thinking. We are to submit to unjust masters. We're to submit to good and gentle masters, good and gentle employers with all respect. So Peter comes along and he dismantles this disrespecting attitude by calling believers to submit not only to the good and gentle, but to those who are unjust. And that word unjust there has this idea of being crooked, of being perverse. Those those people that are just morally bent. Like they just don't think the way we think. They do things that are wrong. The crookedness of these, these supervisors, these managers, these masters over these Asian-minded believers suggests that these masters who were supervising these servants in, in Peter's day were not only physically mistreating these Asia Minor Christians, but they were also dishonest in how they paid them, also dishonest in working conditions and expectations and etc. and etc. But Peter comes along and says, just because these guys are crooked, now I want to make just a quick caveat, it's, it's the same argument that we made last week with civil authority. The moment that these unjust masters ask us to do something that is just a direct disobedience to God, directly a sin against God, we, we are not called, the rest of scripture says, to, to just do what they say, especially when they're calling us to sin. But the category here that Peter's building up is this. These people are not asking you to do something that is a sin against God. They're asking you to just do normal, everyday work, but you are choosing not to do it just because you don't like the person. Well, that person's just a jerk. That person's just an idiot. They're so ignorant. That I can't understand. Why don't they just think? I mean, I know how this guy operates. I know how he thinks. I know the things that he says and where he goes. And he's just crooked. He's just perverse. He's just, he's just twisted. I don't like what he does. And so whenever he tells me something, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to operate under his authority. I don't like the guy. I'm not going to do what he says. But Peter says, as gospel believers, we, we don't have privilege. Christ's redeemed people live out their gospel identity when they submit to unjust authority for the Lord's sake. We are to be Christ-centered people, and as we seek to honor Christ, one of the implications is, according to Peter, is that we submit to unjust authority. But look at verses 19 and 20 in your copy of Scripture. Peter goes on to say this, for this is a gracious thing, What's a gracious thing? When we, as employees, submit to unjust employers, this, this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For, what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But, it is credit to you if, when you do good and suffer for it you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Not only are believers to submit to unjust authority, but believers please God when they endure unjust suffering. And so what Peter's going to do in verses 19 through 25 is really what he's going to do is he's going to give us two reasons why he can say what he just said in verse 18. 
Verse 18, very simple command. You, as a worker, submit to your unjust boss. And then, like we've been saying all along through 1 Peter, whenever he just comes and he just plops a command right into our lap, we always follow up with, well, why? Why should I do this? What is your, your biblical justification for telling me to, to operate and think in this way? And he gives us two reasons, actually. It's verse 19 and it's verse 21. He's going to say, here are the two reasons why I can say what I just said in verse 18. For it is a gracious thing God is pleased with. It is a grace to us. God finds favor with those who operate in this way. Second reason he's going to say in verse 21. For we as a gospel people have been called to think and act this way. Way and everything else in all of these verses, 18 through 25, hangs off those three things. Big idea, submit. Reason number one, verse 19, it's a gracious thing. Reason number two, verse 21, for to this you have been called. So that first reason answers why. Why should we, as workers, submit to unjust authority? One reason for submission to authority in the work sphere is because believers can please God when they endure unjust suffering. The command, be subject to your masters with all respect, is an act that God finds pleasing. And he sees this as a gracious thing. And this is especially true when believers, mindful of God, endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. See, Peter recognizes the fact that submission to an unjust boss means that you will most likely suffer unjustly. And this kind of suffering produces sorrows. The idea of that word sorrows is pain, sometimes physical pain, most likely always emotional pain. But notice the endurance that pleases God is when a believer is mindful of God. See, when you read verse 19, it's not, for this is a gracious thing when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. There's really no qualification to that. This isn't just God is really fired up when you just sort of grin and bear it. White knuckle your way through it, man. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just, and just, just persevere for perseverance sake. God is really pleased with that. No, Peter says God is pleased with this endurance while suffering sorrows unjustly when you as a believer are mindful of God. So he connects endurance of suffering to a person who is consumed with a mind filled with God. A believer's ability to endure unjust suffering is rooted in God's sovereignty, not our ability to endure for the sake of just endurance. See, Peter's driving home the point, and he does so in verse 20 with a rhetorical question and then an affirmation. So, so he says, listen, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about in regard to this idea of enduring suffering. Listen, what credit is it to you if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Rhetorical question. In our mind, we're supposed to go, uh, it's really no credit, right? I mean, you're being a knucklehead. You are get, there's nothing commendable about living a life of sin outright disobeying your authority over you in the workplace, then you receive some punishment from that authority over you. And then if we were to go home and cry, oh, I've just suffered persecution today and I'm just trying to persevere and endure through the work day. Well, well, what happened, honey? Well, my boss told me 10 times to do this and I didn't do it. And he told me to send this email and I wasn't going to do it. Don't you know what he does when he goes home in his own time? And I'm not going to submit to that guy. And like, hopefully if you have any... Thing that resembles a God-fearing wife, she's going to go, man, you're a jerk. 
You're not doing what your boss is telling you to do. He's not telling you to sin. He told you to file a fax report. He told you to send an email, and you're just not doing these things. Of, of course you're going to receive some suffering from that. It's no credit to you if you endure that. But the rub comes, the thing that is a gracious thing in the sight of God is when you are marked by doing good. When you are actually doing what your boss tells you to do. But instead of being rewarded with something good for your good deeds, you actually receive the reward of just suffering. Unjustly is what Peter says. See, this is the thing that usually chafes against our our soul, chafes against our, our conscience. When Peter comes along and says in verse 20, the thing that is gracious, the thing that is pleasing to God is when you do good, yet in your doing of good, your unjust boss, your unjust employer, your unjust manager, your supervisor comes along and makes this decision. I see that you've done good, but I don't care. I'm still going to cause you to suffer in some way. I'm still not going to give you that raise. I'm actually going to give you more work to do. I'm going to not honor you in the way that you should be honored. I know you were the team leader and I know you did the most work, but I'm actually going to honor the guy over here that I like more than you and I'm not going to honor you for doing good. Peter says in that moment, you really have two ways that you can react. One is you can just fire up the machine of rebellion. Start a Facebook page why my boss is a jerk and post on it every five minutes this is why he's a jerk point number one this is why he's an an idiot point number two this is why he's just a buffoon point number three sub point a under point three buffoon act number one buffoon act number all right we we could do that we could resent we could go to self-denial we could go towards self-pity like like a woe is me attitude But Peter is saying this, listen, even if you do good and are somehow rewarded with suffering, rewarded with with this category of sorrows, whether it's physical or whether it's emotional, Peter is saying this, it is good and right for you to endure. And we have to admit, man, not easy. Not easy. So how are we to process this? Because there's just something that, like I said, chafes in our soul that, that man, I want to be rewarded for doing, doing good. My sense of justice says when I do good, I should be rewarded for doing good. When I do good, I should not be rewarded with suffering. Therefore, when I experience that disconnect of doing good and then reaping the reward of suffering, I need to do something to correct this wrong that's been done toward me. But Peter comes along and says this, no, 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 the key to righteous suffering is a trusting awareness of God's sovereignty in the midst of your suffering. Ultimately is a confidence that God will right all wrongs, which enables a Christian to come to this scenario and to submit to an unjust manager without resentment, without rebellion, without self-pity, without despair. 
See, it's in times like these that our our natural sense of justice and self-protection would seek revenge or would turn to insubordination. That guy didn't honor me. What I'm going to do is seek to be subversive. I'm going to try to undo everything that he's doing. And then that will show him. That will pay him back. That That will make him see that he did me wrong. But Peter's application of the gospel calls for an entirely different action. Christ-redeemed people are to keep enduring patiently, being ever mindful of God, ever mindful of His sovereignty, ever mindful, continually trusting Him to care for those rights which have been trampled on by others. See, what Peter isn't doing is just saying, man, brother, I know you've got, you, don't go, you don't have any rights. He's recognizing we have rights, but he's also recognizing this. When an unjust supervisor, an unjust authority tramples on those rights, there's a, there's a, there's a fork in the road. What we can do is go, I'm going to undo this man. I'm going to revile him, and I'm going to cause him to suffer. I'm going to threaten him in some way to show how he trampled on my rights. Or he says the other fork in the road is this. We submit to his authority. To endure patiently and not retaliate is when faith is proved to be genuine. For in these moments, your, fa- your trust, your faith is resting in God's ability to reign supreme over your situation and not your feeble attempt to act like God in his place. See, when we try to strike back when we've had wrong done to us, really it's betraying something. It's showing, it's revealing something this. Am I in this moment going to truly exercise faith, faith, trust, exercise this idea that God is truly in control of this, this this thing just happened, me do good, I receive suffering. Am I going to try to step into the place of God and go, God, you can't fix it, I will be the one who fixes this. Or will we step back and go, God, you are sovereign over all things, and I am even going to trust you're sovereign over these rights that were just trampled on. Therefore, God, I'm resting in you. I'm going to exercise faith and trust that you will take care of this in your time. You are reigning supreme in this situation. I think this is what Peter's calling us to. Believers can please God when they endure unjust suffering. That's reason number one. We've been called to this. Look at verses 21 through 25. Not only are servants to be subject to your masters with all respect, point one, this is a gracious thing, but point two, to this you have been called. Believers live out this calling. Believers proclaim the gospel. Believers magnify Jesus Christ when we imitate Jesus Christ in this way. So he's now going to give us a second reason. This is is Peter basically saying, hey, big red flag, here's the second reason why I can say what I just said back in verse 18. You have been called to this. When God called you as his own, when he saved you, the gospel came to you, the gospel saved you to God, but it also saved us to something else, and that was to live in a way that images Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world. The second reason for submission to unjust authority is because believers have been called to live this way. 
And with no apology, Peter directly ties together our conversion and suffering for doing good. Because you have been saved with your faith and repentance, trusting that Jesus Christ and his work on the cross was alone good enough to make you right with the Father. Peter grabs an idea, then he grabs this idea of suffering unjustly for doing good and says they are intimately connected. Jesus suffered in his earthly life And as his people, we are called to imitate his life. See, God's people are a called people. They have been called out of sin and condemnation and called to reflect God in all they do. And this idea of you have been called just flies off the pages of of Peter's first letter. 1 Peter 2.9, you have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been called to return blessing for cursing. Chapter 3, verse 9. We have been called to eternal glory in Christ Jesus, chapter 5, verse 10. But now, here in 2.21, Peter says we are also called to suffer unjustly. Called, called, called to suffer unjustly. Like th- This is not the language of optional. Because you have been saved, you have also simultaneously and equally been called to suffer unjustly. The call of the gospel is a call to salvation while simultaneously a call to suffer unjustly. But the question we have to ask is why? Why are we called to suffer in this way? Why is this not just an optional thing? Like, why can't I just be called to God because of the credit and the merit of Jesus Christ and what he bought for us on the cross through the shedding of his blood? Why can't I fall into the category of those other people who go to skate through life without having to suffer unjustly? But Peter answers this question for us. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called. Why have I been called? And that beautiful little word there, because, because Christ also suffered for you because Christ left you an example so that this result would, without a doubt, take place in your life. You might follow in his steps. See, Christ's mission of gospel proclamation was marked by perfect obedience to God, and yet he received reviling and suffering. I mean, do you get that? Jesus was the ultimate gospel preacher. Jesus was the one who had a gospel identity. He was on gospel mission. And if Jesus, on gospel mission, received reviling and suffering while he was on mission, then we can rest assured that his people will find themselves in the same place. Gospel people are called to imitate Jesus as we go about proclaiming the gospel. See, Jesus is the ultimate doer of good. Do you want to know who the, who the best do-gooder is? It's Jesus. Look at verse 22. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yet, 23, he was reviled. He was insulted. He was mocked. He was maligned. He received abusive speech his whole life. He received abusive speech in his trial. 
He was reviled in his crucifixion. Jesus Christ suffered. When you find yourself in that place where you do good and yet you receive suffering for it, it's meant to draw this connection in our mind. There is one other who was perfect, who never sinned, who never had deceit in his mouth, yet he received suffering, yet he was reviled. See, it is in this way that Christ becomes our example. See, for when he was reviled, when he was mocked, when he was maligned, when he was assaulted with abusive speech, he did not revile in return. When he suffered from the unjust authority that was over him, he did not threaten. So what in the world was Jesus doing? Well, Peter says this. This entire time, Jesus was continually, through the mocking, through the maligning, through the reviling, through the suffering, was continually, 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 continually entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus' life over and over is marked by this. Suffering, God, you're in control. Mocking, God, you're in control, reviling God, you're in control. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm committing no sin. There's no, no deceit found in my mouth. People are causing me to suffer. And Jesus over and over again is going, God, you're sovereign. God, you're reigning. God, you're in control. God, you've got this. All of this stuff happening to me is not somehow off of your radar. The reviling of Christ took place throughout his life, but it was especially intense during his trial and his crucifixion. If you go read the Passion account, the account of Christ's crucifixion in the the Gospel of Mark, when you go towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 25 through 32, there's just a primo example of this. And what's interesting is the person who's telling us to be subject to unjust authority because Jesus suffered under the hand of unjust authority is the same source material where Mark got a lot of his information for his gospel, which is Peter. And so as Mark is writing this down, as he's having conversations with Peter, and then Peter has this conversation with us through through 1 Peter, you go back to Mark 15 and you hear these words as as Mark records this event in the crucifixion narrative of Jesus' life. It was a third hour when they crucified Jesus. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, which, by the way, was a mock. Okay? These people weren't looking at Jesus and going, this guy's really the king. What they're doing is going, no king in any world would ever go through what he's going through. They were trying to punk out Jesus by saying, look, you called yourself the king. Look, what kind of king are you? And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You come down from the cross Then the chief priests with the scribes came along and and they joined in the crowd and they mocked him, Jesus Christ, to one another saying, he saved others, but 
Can he save himself? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And then, and then in an act of just pure irony, those two, two robbers who were being crucified on the left and the right of him, they joined in, and Mark sums it up like this, they joined in the reviling of Christ. Mark says whenever those passers-by came along and were deriding him. It was reviling. They were assaulting him. They were wagging their heads and saying, oh, you said these things, but look how, how foolish you are now. Look how idiotic you are now. Look how stupid you look. You're claimed to be a king, but you're pinned onto a cross. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. He saved others, but can he save himself? And then, then they're even inviting him in this moment to come and say, let the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the King of Israel. Why don't you do something? Save yourself. Come down off that cross so we may see and believe. And if there was ever a time when someone was being reviled, when someone was suffering, like this is the one moment in all of history where we'd say Jesus would be completely justified to like, like burst off the cross and it splinters into a thousand pieces and the nails go exploding from his hand and he levitates down to the ground and just like lays waste to all these people. Like no one would step back and go, well, that was unjustified. People look at that, they were reviling Jesus. They were mocking Jesus. They were causing Jesus to suffer. And if anybody in the history of the world could revile in return, could threaten in return for suffering, it would be Jesus in this moment. But what did he do? He left us an example when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. In this moment, Jesus did not depend on himself to retaliate, even though he was more powerful than those unjust authorities who were reviling him and causing him to suffer. That, understand this. Jesus. Jesus. Sustaining the whole world, sustaining these fools who are mocking him. They're living because he is sustaining them to live. And they were openly inviting him, exercise power, sir, and prove to us that our reviling and our suffering that we're causing to you is unjust. I prove to us, and Jesus in that moment exercises unwagging trust. In the sovereignty of God, saying, I'm going to trust that you, Father, in this moment, are ruling and reigning supreme in this instant. Jesus left us an example. He continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, Christ left you and I an example so that we might follow in his steps. When you go look at verse 21 and you see this phrase, he left you an example, the idea behind that word example is this. It's when a little child is trying to learn how to write. And a mommy and a daddy come along, a teacher comes along and says, I'm going to teach you how to write your alphabet. I know you don't know how to do it, but first let me, let me show you. So this teacher takes off a piece of paper, an eight and a half by 11, and writes out in a big black Sharpie marker the ABCs, A through Z. 
sets it down before that child and says, now take your pencil in hand. The child grabs the pencil, grab a piece of tracing paper. The child grabs a piece of tracing paper. And then the teacher, the mommy, the daddy, instructs the child, place this piece of tracing paper over this. See, I've left you an example. You don't have to wonder how to do your ABCs. I've shown you how to do it. I've done it perfectly. I've showed you. I've done it right. They're all the right size. They're the right shape. They're the right lines. They're the right angle. They're all connecting in the right way. Don't worry. I've shown you an example. Now don't wonder. Don't worry how you're going to figure out how to do it. Just take your tracing paper, lay it right on top of my, my example, then take up your pencil and hand in and learn. And Jesus is our example. He's the original. We're called to lay our lives, this tracing paper of our lives, on top of Christ and go, how am I supposed to act when my boss acts unjust toward me? Don't wonder anymore. You look to Jesus Christ, the one who did not revile in return, the one who did not threaten when he was suffered. See, our instinctive response when we are abused is to try to get even, isn't it? Abused me. I'm going to get even with him. I'm going to get even with that person. I'm going to hurt this person. They hurt me. I'm going to hurt them. Or if somehow we don't have the ability to to hurt them, what we're going to do is threaten them. You just wait until I get into that place where I can hurt you, sir. And you launch lobs of threats and accusations. But to suffer unjustly and then revile and threaten in return is ultimately an act of unbelief. It is a bold-faced denial of God's sovereignty, for in that moment your confession is this, I must take action, for God is wholly incapable of taking action on my behalf. See, to the suffering person who trusts deeply in God and believes that God is in control of every situation, there's another response, one perfectly exhibited by Jesus, and this is the example that he leaves for us, entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. Don't feel the need to play God. Don't feel the need to act like God. God is God. God is sovereign. God is ruling. God is reigning. Trust, 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 trust. You turn to verses 24 and 25, it's actually quite amazing. Because it's sort of a, where did that come from? We're talking about Jesus, our example, man, follow his ways. And all of a sudden, like, like Peter at this point, I mean, it's almost like he just can't stand it. And he just flat out drops a gospel bomb right in their laps, right? Like he just comes right up to him and says, like, listen, fact, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Result, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Gospel, fact, our sin wounded Christ. Gospel, result, Christ's wounds heal our sin. Gospel, fact, we were straying like sheep. Gospel, result, the shepherd and overseer of our souls grabbed us, rescued us, and turned us from our sin. Peter explodes and exudes with the good news of the cross. The gospel of the cross frees you, it frees me, it frees us from sin so that we may live to righteousness. And this is our hope. This is our hope. See, our hope as Christians of submitting to unjust authority in the relational sphere of work is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. It frees us to do good to unjust authority. It frees us from the burden of trying to be God. And it frees us to entrust our suffering to him who judges justly. 
This is the good news of the cross. We don't have to try to to act like God. We don't have to try to live in sin in this way. We've been freed from having to be God over our own lives. God is God over our lives. Christ is the ruler over our lives. And the call of the gospel of the cross is, listen, you've been free. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we could die to sin. Don't keep trying to act like God. Don't keep trying to, to entrust yourself to yourself, but entrust yourself to God. You have been freed, freed, freed to live to righteousness. And this is the good news of how the gospel comes to us and saves us and motivates us, equips us and frees us to imitate Jesus in this way. Let's pray. God, you are good. God, you are so good. God, you don't leave us to wander. You don't leave us to to drift about. You You don't leave us to try to just figure out life, but the Holy Spirit comes and inspires people like Peter to lay out the glories of the good news of the gospel. And then with a simple turn of a simple verse, just starts unpacking all of the gospel practicalities of what this means for us, especially in these relational spheres, these, these things that God has created, these, these spheres of where we just relate to one another, like government and marriage and work. God, I pray that you would assist us to proclaim. Help us to come and respond rightly right now. If we are a people who have been marked by trusting ourselves to us so that we can handle in our own terms the wrong that's come to us and we've just been simply discrediting the gospel in this way, as I think Peter would argue, God, may we come with hearts of repentance, just confessing before God, God, I've tried operating on my own terms for my sake. Now I'm going to confess my sin and for the sake of the Lord, I'm going to entrust myself to the sovereign hand of God the Father so that he will lead and guide my ways. I will turn my eyes by faith to my perfect example, Jesus Christ, and seek to live out under the power and inspiration of the Spirit Jesus Christ. God, for those of us who have tasted and seen these areas, these things done done well, would you spur us on to keep up, to persevere to the end? This is not an easy road, but God, would you guide us and lead us so that we would honor Jesus, keep honoring Jesus, even when it's good, even when it's bad, even when it's hard, even when it's easy, even when it seems like this is going to never end, would we by the help of Christ endure to the end in this way, for it is pleasing in God's sight when his people do so. God, we love you now, and may may these brothers and sisters come and respond in a way that is right and honoring to you as we do Lord's Supper, as we seek to worship you again through song. In Christ's name I pray, amen.